Well, good morning. Uh, would you join me in opening up your Bible to Proverbs chapter 5? I believe that's page 530 on your Blue Pew Bible if you want to follow along with us there. Uh, it's been a great morning so far. Just uh, thank you to the worship team for just um, helping us cling to the Lord's promises this morning. Um, and you know, the whole team just is a gift to our church. I feel like I always have to say this time of year, uh, Tori, now you're going back to college. Where's Tori? You're going back this week. The girl was just blessing us with her voice. I feel like I say this every year about this time, but um, I know you go to the best higher educating institution in the country, TCNJ. Fully endorse that. Um, but, you know, it's not that long of a commute if you just want to stay here, you know, this, this upcoming year, you know, a few hours. Uh, but, no, really just um, excited for what you're doing down there and what God has for you down there, but also just the way you uh, bless us um, through singing. Um, well, we are going to, this morning, continue with our summer series in the book of Proverbs, looking at the way of wisdom, and, and the kind of the way we're doing it is we're taking all these kind of uh, topics in the book of Proverbs that it talks a lot about, and exploring that, laying it on top of our lives. What's the way of wisdom in this topic apply to me in our life, in our church? And uh, this morning, we're going to look at the wisdom of sexuality. So a couple things up front. Um, if it's your first time with us this morning... I promise we don't say this every single week. Um, you're probably thinking, like, I knew this was a bad choice. Um, if you brought somebody with you this morning, I'm sure you're like, really, Pastor? You're going to do this to me. Um, but we are glad you're here. And um, also, just a word to uh, students, you know, middle school, high school, college, the last thing you want to do, I'm not as far removed from your life stage as you may think I am. Uh, the last thing you want to do is hear a sermon about sexuality sitting next to your parents. And I, I get that, but I would just say this to encourage you. Uh, you're getting a worldview on sexuality every single day. And this is an opportunity for us to see what does the Lord have to say. And I think even that song we were singing this morning, um, how true it rings for what we especially need this morning. Lord, here's my heart, Lord. Speak what is true. I pray that I would have the courage and compassion to faithfully proclaim God's word this morning and that we all would have, knowing that nobody's walking into this room as a blank slate when it comes to sexuality. And we all have things that we're bringing in with us that we all just have the ears to hear this morning. And I know uh, not a month goes by, it seems, that there's a viral video on the internet of some pastor somewhere railing against a certain group of people, condemning, casting judgment, wishing harm upon somebody based on this topic of sexuality. And when I see that, not only does it make my heart hurt for just the bride of Christ being represented that way, uh, but also knowing as a pastor that that's going to make my job that much harder when I stand up and want to preach about the wisdom of sexuality. And so a series in Proverbs, um, you cannot do one with any integrity and skip this topic. And so we're going to dive in this morning. And my hope is that with uh, this topic, like every topic in Proverbs we've hit this summer, that this is not just this uncomfortable list of do this and don't do that and do this and don't do that, but that this is a topic that points us to God's creative design and ultimately to his son, Jesus Christ. And so, um, with that said, that this topic is, shouldn't be like any other topic, but at the same time, I have to be honest, it's 2019, and we can't bury our heads into the sand and act as if the topic of sexuality is not one of, if not the, most polarizing issues in our day when it comes to Christianity intersecting with culture, All right? I talked about the biblical worldview of work a few weeks ago. I'm getting no kickback on that. Everyone's like, all right, whatever, take it or leave it. But we talk about the biblical worldview of sexuality, all of a sudden, there's kickback. 
And so I want to be careful to resist the temptation to say everything I think that needs to be said on a single topic in one sermon. It's not going to happen. But rather to allow our passages in Proverbs shape and inform us this morning, knowing that we are a church that welcomes questions, that welcomes wrestling, that we want to have that conversation with you. If something you hear today sparks a desire to want to talk about something further. Um, but the realm of sex and sexuality is an area that uh, it's not a modern problem, right? Like, like it has been twisted by the enemy, not just in 2019, but for all of history ever since sin entered the world in Genesis chapter 3, right? Which is why Proverbs, a book written thousands of years ago, is a book on wisdom and dedicates a pretty significant amount of time towards this area of discussion. So it's not new, Right? But what, I'll tell you what is relatively new that makes this more pressing is that this contention is no longer church versus culture. It's increasingly church versus church. You know what I mean? Where this is an area where Christians are increasingly disagreeing and churches and entire denominations are beginning to split. And so even if you are into kind of recent headlines of kind of church culture and things, uh, you will have seen the recent negative attention shed upon the so-called, quote, purity culture. In churches, Joshua Harris, he's he writing his book that I won't ask you to raise your hand if you um, read When I Kissed Dating Goodbye back in the 90s or since, but probably pretty significant people in this room, amount of people in this room that have read it. Um, but purity culture was basically very dominant late 80s, early 90s um, that did a lot of damage to generations of Christians, especially the youth, that was defined by purity pledges and purity rings that gave false promises to young men and women that if they avoided sex or anything sexual, God would reward them with a great marriage. And it was almost this prosperity gospel manifesting itself in a sexual ethic and did a lot of damage that casted sex, sexual desire as something that's wicked, as something to be suppressed and avoided at all costs. And it's done a lot of damage. And there has, has been led to what I would call the purity culture kickback that's been increasingly growing in the last few years, where the pendulum has clearly swung all the way to the opposite direction, where amongst Christians, especially younger Christians, sex is almost expected whenever and wherever you want it. If it feels good, it must be right. And that's the new kind of sexual ethic that our students and all of us throughout the church are facing more and more. Like one recent celebrity who said, um, in defending multiple partners, saying, I have sex and Jesus still loves me. So with all that said, here's my dual aim for the sermon on a uh, wisdom of sexuality. Number one, apply to yourself first. Because we can always tend to think, man, somebody needs this sermon. And maybe they're here, maybe you're sitting next to them, or maybe they're not here, like, I'm going to find a way to send it to them. And you know what? That might be true. But first, apply to yourself. Because we all wrestle with some kind of either sexual sin or doubt or temptation on some level. And no one is exempt. And we all need the Holy Spirit to empower us in this. And, and, and it's also knowing a very top level source of shame for many. For many of us in this room, it's a place of the deepest hurt and pain that we face, the deepest wrestling that we're terrified to let anybody know about. Speaking of Proverbs, Proverbs 20 verse 9 says, quote, who can say I have made my heart pure? I am clean from sin. Anyone? Look around. No hands. The answer is no one. So even for those who, by God's grace, you are what you consider out of the woods when it comes to sexual sin, you can still smell the bark on the tree behind your back. You know what I'm saying? None of us are that far. 
And then, so that's aim number one. Aim number two is to equip us in our own convictions for God's design for sex and sexuality without fear. The reality is for many Christians in churches like ours, Grace Church, we might not be struggling with where we believe or what we believe, but rather making our belief known to a culture that disagrees with us. Amen? Where, where we're just, there's fear, man. There's fear of being labeled. There's fear of being grouped in with those viral videos of that pastor condemning this whole group of people. There's fear of being ridiculed. Fear of being seen as a bigot or a prude or both. And that, real, that fear is real because ultimately fear can and will begin to shape belief. And there's no other topic that causes more people to walk away from their faith than this one. So we need a sermon on the wisdom of sexuality, amen? And, and as it often does, a close look and a study of scripture provides to be just this oasis in the desert where we are quenching our thirst in a confused and parched world. So we're going to read Proverbs chapter 5. I'm going to read the whole thing up front, and I'll kind of tell you how we're going to approach unpacking it this morning. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding that you may keep discretion, and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Shoal. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. And now, O sons, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless, lest strangers take their fill of your strength, and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life you groan, when your flesh and body are consumed, and you say, how I hated discipline, and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. So when it comes to sexuality, the book of Proverbs seeks to give wisdom primarily through a warning. And specifically, a warning against adultery. It is the header of all of Proverbs 5. If you looked ahead to Proverbs chapter 6, starting in verse 20, you see another heading, warning against adultery. And then all of chapter 7 has the header, warning against the adulteress. So this is a big deal to the book of Proverbs. And, and adultery is generally thought of a breaking of a covenant between a husband and a wife. A giving yourself to someone other than your spouse, which we'll kind of hit on in a second but remember that Solomon was writing Proverbs primarily to provide instruction to young men who were training to be leaders in Israel. So that's why that is the context that this is written in. But being inspired by the Holy Spirit, being timeless instruction as part of the Bible to the church, this is interchangeable where you could change the him and hers in the text. You know what I mean? 
And this isn't an idea of just men avoid women, but the idea of men and women avoiding adultery. And the adulteress is not necessarily a person, but a temptation of a leading of astray. And so the implication of God's design and order for sexuality is not explicitly stated in Proverbs 5 or the book of Proverbs, but it is clearly implied. And it is aligned with the rest of Scripture. So, so for all the talking points about um, this topic in our culture and how complex it is and nuanced it is and difficult it is, the principle of Scripture of sex and sexuality is surprisingly simple and clear. And when you hear me say simple, don't hear easy. That it's just easy to believe or easy to obey. It is not easy. But it is clear and rather simple. That sex is created and ordered by God to exist within the marriage union between one man and one woman. And sex anywhere outside a covenantal marriage is against God's design and order rooted in creation. And in this way, the topic of sexuality is kind of similar to the other topics we've already hit. And that it is a good gift and a terrible God. Sex is a good gift and a terrible God. And Proverbs primarily hits the warning against going outside of God's design, the negative aspects of what we might call sexual sin. Another wisdom book in the Bible, right, all the wisdom books are kind of meant to be taken together, is the Song of Songs. The Song of Songs kind of primarily shows the positive aspects of living within God's design for marriage. And so uh, Proverbs is kind of the negative side, Song of Songs is the positive side. Um, But here's the major, major crossroads where I think the Bible separates from culture, is that the Bible treats sexuality as behavior, whereas the culture sees sexuality as identity. You following that? That is the big difference. Sex sees sex and sexuality as behavior, whereas the culture sees it as this is a part of who I am. This is a part of my identity. Which is why the response to a quote-unquote biblical worldview is often met with such hostility and anger because by believing what Christians may believe, the traditional view of sex and sexuality, that is seen as an attack against who people are. And so I can understand their hostility in a sense that if you feel like you're being attacked for who you are, that's a big deal. But in the Bible, sex is behavior. It's not a means of identity. And it's meant to exist within a marriage, both for the purposes of enjoyment and multiplication. Which is to say this, since there will be no marriage in heaven, I actually preached on that last August in Mark, so if that just surprised you, I'm sorry, there'll be no marriage in heaven. Or, you're welcome, there'll be no marriage in heaven, right? However you view your marriage, it won't last forever. It's fair to assume there will be no sex in heaven. If you want to disagree about that, we can chat. But that's my, that's my kind of connecting the dots. And, and, and why? Well, I think the reason is because it won't be needed. Because it's not a matter of identity. It's a matter of behavior. Which is also why we believe single men and single women can live a life to the fullest now without sex. It is possible. It's not required for your deepest joy or fulfillment. It's a gift that we might get a taste of here. But ultimately, we're all going to live out in eternity without it. And so Proverbs 5, 6, and 7 is a warning against sexual behavior that is outside the bounds of God's design. And it's manifested in this person called the adulteress, which is the temptation to break God's design. So now at this point, you might be sitting here a few minutes in and go, okay, so this is a sermon for married people. 
I get it. And, and I'd say, yeah, it includes married people. And the immediate context is for married couples. But Jesus will take this word adultery and he will expand it in Matthew chapter 5 to show this is actually for all people. Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 27 and 28, up on the screen. Jesus says this, You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Paraphrase, we're all guilty. No one just got freed from that statement, that definition of adultery. And Jesus did not change the definition. He revealed the, revealed the true definition. And so we're going to break Proverbs 5 and then parts of 6 and 7 down like this. An outline of temptations, consequences, and then finish with practical wisdom. What are the temptations of adultery? What are the consequences of it? And what's practical wisdom to avoid it? So we're going to start with emotional temptations. Let me read verses 3 and 4 again. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Uh, lips obviously having a kind of a double meaning there. There's a physical desire for them. But first and foremost, lips tempt with the words they speak. A speech that lures us into sexual sin, which that line, sweet in the mouth, bitter in the stomach. Proverbs 6, 23, 24 for the commandment is a lamp and the teaching a light, and the reproofs of discipline are the way of life, to preserve you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Proverbs 7, 4, and 5, say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call insight your intimate friend, to keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth, smooth words. Here's the point. The first steps into sexual sin and adultery are generally emotional and not physical. There's a pastor named Vadi Bakum. He said once, and it was actually part of, I think, the um, family life art of marriage study that I know many of you guys have done. He's, he talks about being intimate with somebody. When we talk about being intimate with somebody, you generally think physical, right? He says being intimate with someone is always emotional first, not sexual. Because intimacy is sharing with someone something that you don't share with your spouse. And adultery begins with sharing words, some form of communication where you begin to say, I'm telling this to you, I can't even tell this to my husband or to my wife. And it's a recipe for disaster. And, and all emotional intimacy starts innocent. It starts small because all sexual sin does. Whatever context you want to talk about it in, there's a seemingly non-physical, innocent beginning. But like all sin, sexual sin grows. It's never satisfied. It never stops. It's like ivy growing on a building. If it's left unchecked, it will not stop. And it will dominate. And Jeff was talking about in, in his life of grace that there's plenty of ways we can connect with one another now, aren't there? Limitless ways that we can communicate with one another. Unlimited platforms. And the danger is that we can use all these platforms to be lured into an emotional intimacy with somebody we shouldn't be. A casual conversation that then starts turning into text messages or social media direct messages or emails, which then leads to a way of talking that begins to go down this path where we start sharing things with someone who is not our spouse. And one commentator I was reading this week um, said that when this happens, this kind of slow drift over time, you can begin to hear the Jaws theme song in the background. Donna, Donna, 
no, 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 right? And that, that's what happens, is that it's the slow drift, but you know it's coming. And it's only a matter of time before somebody's about to get killed in Jaws and the many times in our marriages. And even if it doesn't lead to physical intimacy, which it often does, an emotional affair is still a form of adultery. And it's something that lures you in, right? So now we're talking primarily in the context of marriage, but if talking to singles in the room, there's also emotional temptation to sexual sin as a single. One pastor I heard said that pretty much all sexual sin gets triggered by one of five emotions. Loneliness, boredom, being tired, sad, or angry. One of those five emotions will lead a trigger you into some kind of thing that it shouldn't be, where we need to pick me up. So that's number one of temptations, emotional. Second is physical. So while things often begin with emotional temptation, the fact is that God made us with both bodies and souls and minds, and we can't separate those from one another. They are intimately linked. And physical desires, which are good to have, God's created you with physical desire. The, the answer to this is not suppress your physical desire and see it as wicked. But ultimately, we have sinful natures in a fallen world. And we can tend to desire things even when they're wrong. But we are driven oftentimes by physical desire. We become, in the words of Solomon in Proverbs 5, intoxicated with desire. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? You are drunk with desire off the wrong things. And if this was not true of us, a passage like this would not be necessary in a book about wisdom. I wouldn't be preaching this sermon if this was just something that's ethereal but not real. It's real. And that we've been created with physical desires and we channel them towards the wrong things in our sinful nature. Proverbs 6, 25 says, Do not desire her beauty in your heart and do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. The eyes are a lamp to the body. And all our senses, especially our sight, triggers desires. And what we see triggers desire for um, physical satisfaction for ourselves. And so we have a choice. These physical desires can draw us towards God's design for sex and marriage and our spouse, or if single, in our waiting for a spouse, or it can draw us towards what God forbids. But it's always going to be one or the other. In Solomon's day, this physical draw is towards people, right? It is accessed via people. But I'll tell you what's something different about 2019, that they did not have to worry about Proverbs. And that our uh, being drawn to physical intimacy doesn't require another person, but we can access it whenever we want through the world wide web. The internet and I am pro-internet. I'm a millennial, man. Like, I'm in all the social media platforms. You can find me. Except Snapchat. I still don't know what that is, all right? <laughs> I'm waiting for a high schooler to tell me. It hasn't happened yet. <laughs> Pastor Jeff, you need to tell me. Um, but the internet and the pornography industry that is making billions upon billions upon billions of dollars is a thriving as an outlet for physical desire, isn't it? And it's one of those topics we all know about. And here, like, I bring it up from time to time within church, probably not as much as I should, but we have the same kind of two talking points, don't we? Yes, it's bad. Most of us struggle with it. We shouldn't do it. Let's go home. But as it pertains to adultery, hear me, porn kills intimacy in more marriages than actual affairs ever will, and it's not even close. I'll share one story. Um, 
I have a seminary professor down at Southern. Um, I'm actually forgetting his name right now, but he's in his 70s, late 60s, 70s, been in ministry a long time. He was speaking to a chapel of all men and women who were in the seminary. And he was sharing this story about how his wife uh, began this kind of ministry, um, counseling and kind of being a mother figure to uh, seminary students' wives who were living there with her and kind of just took that upon herself to disciple them, counsel them, again, be a mother figure for them and answering all their questions and really created this really neat bond with a lot of women over, this is 50 years now. And she said one of the top questions she would get from a seminary student's wife was this, how can I keep up with my husband's sexual desire? I want to honor that. I want to be a part of that. Can you help me? How can I keep up with that? Now listen to me. He said 15 years ago, 20 years ago, that started to shift. Where the number, hear me, the number one question he gets from seminary students' wives is, how can I grow my husband's desire for me? And he looked out across the room, totally silent, and said, what's changed? What happened 20 years ago? The internet. Porn is killing more intimacy in marriages than anything else ever will. And it's killing marriages. And that fact alone gave me chills up my back that this is a way bigger deal than we let on. And so here is our annual reminder as we all gear up for football season starting in a few weeks. Rochelle saw Jets games on the, a couple days ago preaching. She's like, are you kidding me? <laughs> like, this is already? Anyway, that the porn industry makes more money than the NFL, MLB, and NBA combined. And it's an industry that feasts upon lust to generate income. And because of, because of its privacy and accessibility, it's the perfect storm for an addiction to grow. It's like the python population in Florida. You guys know how much I hate snakes. And so I have this keen, sick interest in the pythons in Florida. And that it has been the perfect storm for a problem to grow down there because the climate is conducive to their population and reproduction, and there's no natural predators in the region. So since around 2000, when some people released their pit snakes into the wild, thank you very much, and combined with Hurricane Andrew, where a lot of snakes that were being breeded escaped, the result in just 20 years led, has led to a massive problem for Florida. They capture about 500 pythons a year. They think about tens of thousands get born every year. It's a major problem. <laughs> Before you retire down there, all right? But interesting, the same timeline when this professor started talking about when things started to change with the internet 20 years ago. It's only 20 years. A major problem in our generation. Why? Because it has the perfect environment for porn usage to grow and that it's very private and it's very accessible. And if unchecked, there's no natural predator to shut it down. And the engine that drives temptation for that physical intimacy is lust. Right? Lust is a desire but not the good desire we've been defined, designed with. It's the selfish desire. You know what lust says? It says, I want to use somebody as an object and not as a person. And porn is a lot easier than having sex with a spouse because you don't have to give of yourself. You just take for yourself. And sex is designed where we are in, in turn 
giving ourselves. That's the beauty of it. That's God's design for it. You're giving of yourself to someone who is giving themselves to you. And when that covenant union is broken, we just take and we take and we take and we don't want to give. And here's where maybe it gets controversial, is that I think we're all kind of agreement that porn's destructive. But the Bible says any sexual activity outside of a marriage union is likewise. So obviously affairs, premarital sex, sex trafficking, and that list unfortunately goes on. I think it's all rooted in a selfish desire that says, I want to take and not give. And it's like a fishing pole that shows the worm behind the hook until it's too late. Those are the temptations, emotional, physical, now consequences. Consequences being two, being temporal and then eternal. Meaning the consequences we experience in this world, temporal consequences that we reap what we sow. Proverbs 5, Proverbs 5 goes really in on this. It goes in hard. Verse 9, stay away lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless. Lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life you groan when your flesh and body are consumed. Just as sexual sin has emotional and physical temptations, so it has destructive emotional and physical results and consequences. Regardless of what your culture tries to tell you, there is no such thing as casual sex. Sex is never just sex. It can never be separated from the emotional state of your soul because it does something in you, right? It's a vulnerable giving of yourself, and it's dangerous because it feels great in the moment but gets exposed in due time. Proverbs 14, 13 says, even in laughter, the heart may ache, and the end of joy may be grief. What can begin in joy, even be joyful for a long season, will ultimately end in grief. What feels good in the moment will not last when it comes to sexual sin outside God's design. And Proverbs 5 relates it to food. I think this is a really interesting thing for us to remember. It's honey on the lips but feels bitter in the stomach. You know, one thing I'm um, guilty of is that um, anyone uh, familiar with Bourbon Street at the Garden State Plaza, the food court, you know, places that's always quick to give you the free sample, that food's amazing, man. Like, I, I can never say no to it. And you know what? It's a great 15-minute meal, and I feel awful for the next, like, six hours. <laughs> and the scary thing is, I know that's the way I'm going to feel. But I start taking that free sample, and I can't say no to it. That orange chicken, are you kidding me? Like, what's in that? Coke? I don't know. But, like, I eat it, and you're just, like, immediately, like, 10, 15 minutes, it's this amazing meal, and then you pay for it for about six hours. Tastes great on the lips, feels awful in the stomach. That's how he likens it to sexual sin. True freedom is found in the midst of self-control. This is important, because you take that food metaphor a step further. You can eat whatever you want, whenever you want, and say, it feels good. In the moment, I'm going to eat it. I don't care what time it is. I don't care how much it is. I just want to eat it. You can do that. But then your health will be in shackles over time. But if you control what you eat, it leads to freedom in your health. And it's the same with sexual activity. True freedom is found in the midst of self-control. And temporal consequences that many of us, here's where a lot of us are walking with a lot of emotion today. And it's good to laugh here and there, but this is really gets the aching of our souls. 
that we feel like we are um, living in the truth of, currently facing consequences, or we had in the past, of destroyed relationships, of destroying the way we view one another. Ultimately, it robs us of the energy and love that we're called to have for God and for a spouse. And then eternal consequences. Proverbs 5, 21 and 23, let me read it again, the end of the chapter. For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all of his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he's held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. There are eternal consequences at stake here. And no matter how we try and spin verses like that, or spin verses like Paul's in 1 Corinthians 6, when he says the sexual immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God, I want you to hear me very close here. This is so crucial. Sexual sin does not send anyone to hell. People don't go to hell because they look at porn. People don't go to hell because they might be attracted to somebody of the same sex. People go to hell because they choose self-glory over God's glory and they reject the person and work of Jesus Christ. And it's important not to diminish sexual sin because of our cultural moment, but it's also important not to elevate it above every other sin. The church can be guilty of this, right? We're high and mighty on sexual uh, ethics of the Bible, but then we tend to neglect the more what Jerry Bridges would call respectable sins. Sins like pride. Sins like greed and gossip. But sin is sin And it's the iniquities of the wicked that ensnare this man in Proverbs 5. He is held fast, interesting phrase, by the cords of sin. But one reason why I think Solomon takes careful attention to warn people, especially these young men of sexual sin, is that this is the area where most often the most shame resides in us. For many, maybe in here, you don't need to be told that you're in sexual sin. You tell yourself that every single day. And you're harsher on yourself than anyone else is. And you hate yourself for it. And it's a trap. A lot of us just feel trapped by it. That's one reason why I think Solomon brings this up. Let me tell you the second reason. Solomon is careful to say this because he himself struggled mightily with sexual sin. I mean, this man was a strong, God-fearing leader that received the gift of wisdom from God directly more than anybody else on the world. And yet, it was not even enough to defend against his own downfall. You want to read a sobering text? Follow with me as I read 1 Kings 11, 1 through 4. This is the man who wrote the passage we just read. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives. princesses and 300 concubines. I don't know what that means. And his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old and his, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. Isn't that sobering? He knew the danger of it. He wrote the book, man. And he fell into it. Church, never assume you're above falling into sexual sin. 
There's a hook behind that worm. So where can our hope lie at this point? I hope you're hungering for this. Like, are we all just doomed now? But luckily, after warning us for the third time of the call of the adulteress in Proverbs 7, we turn the page to Proverbs 8. First three verses. Does not wisdom call? Does not understanding raise her voice? On the heights beside the way, at the crossroads she takes her stand, beside the gates in front of the town, at the entrance of the portal she cries aloud. Here's where it turns. Here's where the whole sermon turns. The only way we can be empowered to say no to sexual sin is if we say a better yes to Lady Wisdom. And in Proverbs, this personified wisdom points to, finds its fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus Christ, the true wisdom of God. Our path in this life is eternal destruction unless we respond to the call of Jesus, to the one who stands at the door and knocks, who comes and stands in our place on the cross, and by faith we can be restored in him. This is what it all hinges upon, where we can look at our past, including our past or even our current struggle with sin, even sexual sin, and say, that is wrong and that is shameful, and then simultaneously look at the cross above me, above the screen, and say that we are fully loved and fully forgiven by a sovereign God who would not let us go. There is no level of sexual sin that the cross of Jesus Christ cannot overcome, and there's no stain that the blood of Jesus cannot wash out. Are you hooked on porn? Have you had an affair? Are you on the brink of one emotionally, physically? Have you engaged in premarital sex? Have you had an abortion? Some of these deepest pains that we would be so slow to admit, especially in church, that all of those, Jesus looks at all of those and says, I paid for that. That's atoned for. You're made new now. It's a different you. And when we stare at the cross, we can't be prideful in ourselves, but we also cannot be so dejected that we don't forgive ourselves because the God of the universe looks down on you and sees the perfection of his son. That's the eternal consequence, and the choice is yours. And I need to shorten this because I don't have time to give us all the practical wisdom. Maybe I'll turn it into a blog post or something. But three very quick things. Number one, rediscover God's design for your sexuality. And maybe that means discovering it for the first time. It is a beautiful gift and a terrible God. I just want to read this because it's too good. Ray Ortland, he's kind of like a grandfather pastor to the rest of us pastors. He wrote on the Desiring God website about Proverbs 5.18. He says, it does not say rejoice in your young wife. No wife can remain young for long. Proverbs 5 wisely points out that she is the wife of your youth. However long you both live as husband and wife, she will always be that girl. Look at her. She's that girl you married back when you both were young. The passing years have no power to change that tender reality. She is still that girl who you gave to yourself on your wedding day. This is a warning. Flee from it. Rediscover God's design. Number two, put up guardrails. Here's where true wisdom is needed, where I can't dogmatically tell you what you need to do to avoid sexual sin in your life. I can't do that for you. You need the conviction that then carries it forward to actual implementation in your own life. What guardrails have to be in place? If you're dating and not married, 
what are you doing to prevent from putting yourself in a situation where you'll be physically tempted to give in to such sexual desire? In regards to pornography, what software are on your devices? Can you upload it and give your password to someone else? Can you have someone access your internet history where they can, whenever they want, check in on you? If married, you need to think long and hard about situations you're placing yourself with those who are not your spouse, especially one-on-one. Guardrails are not childish, they're wise. And number three, be in community. Proverbs 18.1, whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. All sin, especially sexual sin, preys upon those who are isolated. Get around people and let them in. Give them access. Be in a church. Join the church. Become a member. Get that accountability that we all need to persevere. You will not win this on your own. So as we close, here's the question we are all faced, faced with. Will we be held fast by our sin, or will we be held fast by our Savior? By the power of the Holy Spirit, the choice is yours. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us ears to hear this morning. We thank you for a church that is willing to listen to hard words. Father, I pray that there would be the right balance of courage and compassion in our hearts right now. That we would let your truth speak to us, but that we would not be self-condemning. We would not be condemning of others, Lord. We would be accountable to ourselves first. Father, we thank you for the grace and the gift of your son, Jesus Christ, who overcomes all iniquity. We thank you that there's no sin he did not pay for. There's no stain of sin that he cannot wash out, Lord. That the promise is made new every single morning that we can wake up and step into that truth. And Father, we just pray that this would sink deep into our hearts. That it would impact not only our minds, but our behavior. And that your name would get all the glory for it. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. So the worship team is going to sing a song. And I ask if we just stay seated for the song. Let this be a part of a closing prayer for us as we consider, uh, we, we cannot move too quickly beyond after thinking about this topic and, and consider these words and then uh, they'll prompt us to join in and then we will close uh, with a song and worship and, um, as we head out this morning. When I fear my faith will fail Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path. For my love is often cold, he must hold me fast. He will hold me fast, he will hold me fast, for my Savior loves me so, he will hold me fast. Those he saves are his delight. Christ will hold me fast, precious in his holy sight, he will hold
cost, he will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so. He will hold me fast. For my life he bled and died. Christ will hold me fast. Justice has been satisfied. He will hold me fast, raised with him to endless life. He will hold me fast till our faith is turned to sight. When he comes at last, he will hold me fast. He will hold me fast for my Savior loves me so. He will hold me fast. Stand and sing with us. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast for my Savior loves me so. He will hold me fast for my Savior loves me so. He will hold me fast. All creatures of our God and King live of your voice and with us sing Alleluia Alleluia The burning sun with golden beam The silver moon with softer gleam Oh praise him Oh praise him Alleluia your care. Oh, praise him. 
Amen. Thank you for joining us today. I uh, hope you have a great week. And would you just bow with me as we close in prayer? Father, we thank you for um, just how beautiful of a Savior you are to us, Lord. And regardless of emotions we came in with, regardless of the emotions that we held during the service, I pray that we would all in one accord walk out with the confidence that we have a Savior who holds us fast and that is faithful to sustain us until uh, you call us home, Lord. Let us lean into that. Let that confidence just flow through us this week and let your name get all the glory for it. For it's in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, that we pray and close. Amen.